Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And instead of our normal weekly roundup, we're going to do something a little bit different today. A roundup, as it were, of your thoughts and questions. And here to help me is <laughs> Politicology <laughs> Ride or Die, the one and only Mike Madrid. It's good to see you. I, I'm troubled by the laugh. I don't know exactly what that meant, but it's always great <laughs> to be here. And I, I'm, I'm loving this format. I'm loving this idea because getting the feedback and, and being able to engage with people's questions has always been, Ron, something I think you and I have always valued. So I love this. I'm hoping we get the feedback that, that uh, we expect because helping people kind of form the way we think about this, I think is just really, really, I love it. I, I enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, man, I love it because, I mean, we get so many very smart really thoughtful uh, emails. A lot of them are just like, here's my take on this. Some of them have really, really good questions. We're going to get to those today too. But we were just talking before we rolled and and thought, hey, actually, we should just throw up a voicemail box so that people can call in, leave their messages, and we can play them. And maybe we'll do that on a future episode. But I want to do more of these uh, and bring in listener perspectives because I think they're just so smart. Yeah. So let's uh, dive right in. We'll try and get to as many as we can. Wendy H. writes, Ron, love your Politicology podcast. Question, why isn't anyone talking about the fact that if Trump gets back into office, he will not try to leave once his term is up? Isn't that what autocrats do? Just last week, Liz Cheney told the Today Show that if Trump gets elected, it might be the last time you actually get to vote. How concerned are you that we could actually cross that threshold? So. Uh, First of all, Wendy, I think a lot of people are talking about that now. I think it's become uh, sort of front and center. Last week on the roundup, we had Olivia Knox, and I think his take was, yeah, it's not that this isn't being covered. The question is, uh, has it really sunk in yet to the voters that, that really need to understand it? So this is a big, very real possibility. And Mike, whenever I think about this topic, you know, there, there was a season during 2023 earlier this year when I just had this like oppositional defiance to talking about Donald Trump because there was something psychically in me that just, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go back to that mental space. 2020 was so fucking dark that I don't want to have to face the reality that we're right around the corner from a possible, uh, from from a possible dictatorship. So um, what do you say to Wendy when she says, how concerned are you that we could actually cross that threshold? And I guess, you know, the question is electorally, but we'll get to some of the other obstacles that are in Trump's way before we get to the general election 2024. But assuming that everything goes swimmingly for him, i.e. in the courts, how concerned are you we could cross that threshold? I'm very concerned. I think it's more, much more likely than not that we end up going into that space, into that world. He's saying it, right? And he's always said that, you know, if we go in, look, Donald Trump, say what you will, is whenever he, he starts talking the crazy talk, he starts, he, he acts on it. He, he, he kind of has built because he's, he's, he's put out so much of it that we've become sort of immune to it. And I think that was Olivier's ar- argument. And I think it's a little numb. Yeah, become numb to it. And, and it is uncomfortable to keep thinking about it. And, and part of it is like, am I taking the crazy pills? Right. It's like, am I, am I, am I overreacting to this? Maybe it is just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. But Donald Trump being Donald Trump is dangerous. That's the whole thing about it. I will say this, and again, one of the frightening things is this guy is very, not only very relevant and consequential, he's, he's on the verge of, of, of coming back and winning an election. But, but, and this is really important, if you look at the data on who is moving 
away from him on this issue, it's the, it is the constituents that matter. It's the voting groups that matter. I got to pr- bring people back to the closing days of the 2022 midterms when Joe Biden got up in front of, you know, Independence Hall in Philadelphia with the red and black lights, the ominous Darth Vader look, and people were going, what are you doing? Like, what your way off message? And he was using the term MAGA Republicans. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were talking specifically to those college-educated Republicans who had just had it with the party, and they bailed on the Republicans in the midterms. I think mm-hmm. that that's still the likeliest strategy because they are still paying attention. They're fatigued by it like all of us, but they're, all, they're more frightened than fatigued. And as long as we as a country remain more frightened than fatigued, we're going we're to come through this. All right, let's move on to uh, some feedback we got about, actually, there was a lot of feedback on the Matthew Taylor uh, episodes, that two-part series on Christian supremacy and the New Apostolic Reformation um, and Matthew Taylor's uh, long, very, very long podcast series about, uh, called Charismatic Revival Fury. Paula from Michigan wrote, I just finished your two-part program on NAR and found it to be like a key in a lock for me. You are to be commended for all the topics you're covered, but uh, but somehow this one in particular. Robin R. wrote, with tears in my eyes, I sent your brilliant discussion to several people already. I listened to each episode twice and will a third, I'm sure. Um, Mike, you texted me when you listened to this one. Actually, I think, you, I think it was just one word. Wow. Do you want to share why why it hit for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, and look, you and I have had a lot of conversations all over the world on our different adventures and travails, trying to understand how this new world is emerging. And this common thread keeps coming back. And you, your personal story, your experience is fascinating. You know, we there were there were some remnants of this when we were in Ukraine talking to people about this, this rising Christian nationalism. I went to Brazil during the Bolsonaro race later on, and it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. It's not just a United States phenomenon. It's a part of this charismatic movement. And Taylor and what you did was open up the history to the origins of it and the literal beginnings of it. Not only was I so entranced by the two-part series, I went back and listened to his eight-part series that this was predicated on. And if you take that body of work, which is fascinating, was, again, that's something I want to listen to again. It's eight hours, right? So it's a, it's a lot. It's a big commitment, but it is so worth it. And if you take what Matthew Taylor's doing, what John Ward has just done, Tim Alberta's book that just came out, and if you also look at Rob Reiner's new movie coming out, this is happening, folks, because this, I believe, is probably the most pernicious threat that is enabling the rise of fascism, not just in the United States, but globally. It's becoming something that is, from because it's religious, it's bigger than, our, than, than a belief in the democratic system. If you believe that God is bigger than government, which I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to come to, and you want to follow God's path, it's more important than man's path by definition. So if people are following that direction and following this nationalist element, of course they're not going to have a belief in the democratic system. In many t- instances, they believe that that's a hindrance to bringing back the, 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 the path that God wants us as human beings to follow. And, and, and Matthew Taylor does it so well, and you're so obviously well positioned to interview him and talk about it because you understand the culture behind it. This seems very foreign to people not of that culture, and that's what's been so helpful to me is trying to understand 
how, what is the uniqueness about not just evangelical Christianity, but what is the uniqueness of, of American evangelical Christianity while we're also seeing these nationalist charismatic movements all over the world, not just in the West. We're seeing it in, in Latin America. We're seeing it in parts of, 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 of Indonesia. It's, 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 it's a global movement, and it's not organic, by the way. <laughs> There's a theology to it, and Matthew breaks that down perfectly. It's like this stuff kind of started in the 1970s, and the, the, the narrative, one of the really fascinating things, I don't mean to go on too long, but I, I, w- I was entranced by this, the, 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 the imagery of warfare and violence and, 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 and combat is so foreign to me under the Christian rubric that I started my own journey looking back from somebody who came from a Catholic tradition and, and, and started to realize when this was at the height of, of Catholic narrative was in the Middle Ages when, when Catholicism was used as nationalism to conquer and create empire and to kill other nations. And, and that's where St. Michael's, the, the image of St. Michael uh, comes in as a warrior saint, right? As somebody who does war, who kills people, who kills the, the non-Christian, the non-believers, the, the pagans, and dominates. That, that is a part of, 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 of religious fanaticism, uh, regardless of your tradition. Islam has it. You know, evangelical Christianity has it. And that fanaticism in Tim Alberta in his book starts to outline the elements that are required of, of, of you know, loyalty, fanaticism, none of which is really part of a, a true Christian tradition. It's very much part of, of a radicalized nationalist tradition where we have fused these two together. And I, I think you did an exceptional job. He, he's very, very insightful, has studied a lot about it. And uh, uh, it, it, there's a whole genre of books, you know, Jesus and John Wayne, and, and it just all of these books are out there. There's a whole body of knowledge. And I think we are just beginning to realize how dangerous it is, because even though the evangelical Christian world is not growing in the United States, it's getting more fierce. It's kind of like the Republican Party. It is the Republican Party. And it's, it's, becoming, it's becoming a force that's looking to overthrow democratic institutions. Yes. Yeah. I think one of the things Matthew does so well is parse the difference between this non-denominational charismatic network of leaders and the people who are following them from uh, what I would consider mainstream evangelical theology and denominational uh, evangelical Christianity, which is um, which is very distinct from um, from the from the non-denominational uh, network that he's talking about. And I remember part of that conversation. I think I I compared it to the way Trump was sort of an outsider in Republican politics. These people are also outsiders in the umbrella of uh, denominational Christianity. Denominational. Um, evangelical Christianity. And so you can see sort of Paula White was sort of the Donald Trump of this movement, and she's not really considered um, respectable among ordinary uh, evangelical, mainstream evangelical Christians. And so I think one thing he does really well in this series is uh, takes great care not to paint with too broad a brush, because I think doing justice to the, the threat that this particular movement poses to liberal democracy, not just in the United States, but everywhere in the world, as you've noted, uh, requires us to be very careful not to 
not to create a kind of violent resistance that is broader and deeper than it needs to be by uh, by sort of grouping all Christians into the same description. And I think I think there's a real danger of that if we go too far and sort of and and the and the impression is well all Christians want to destroy democracy, right? I think that becomes a very dangerous. Uh, uh, and distorted lens because what we're dealing with is like the equivalent of of jihad in Islam, exactly. right? And yes. people who would take to violent violent jihad as opposed to the Muslims who interpret that uh, that idea that notion in Islam as an internal spiritual struggle. And so we need to be very careful when we're talking about these these two vastly different ways of looking at at faith. I think that's true, but I am going to push back a little bit because I I have leaned in strongly to be critical and painting with a with largely with a broad brush, and I, and I want to explain why. I, I I'm I I'm a person of faith in my own way. I'm a cultural Catholic. I'm not theologically Catholic, but that's the tradition that I grew up in, and so I kind of view the world that way. But I remember, especially after nine eleven, there was so much criticism of the Muslim community and saying, "Where are the moderate Muslims?" If you're not this, then where are the moderate Muslims? And I hmm. tweeted last night, where are the moderate evangelicals? Because there's a handful, yeah. there's two or three, but this should be a movement. This is a profound defense of Christianity against something that is not. And just saying, okay, well, don't paint everybody this way. Well, then you've got an obligation to stand up and say, this is not who you are, like I did as a Republican, saying, this Trump shit is not who I am. We have an obligation to stand up. And the, the truth of the matter is, I don't see that in American evangelical Christianity. I'm not saying there aren't a, a smattering of voices, but what I am saying is, there's not nearly enough. There's not nearly enough. And it's the same problem I have with the Republican Party. There's a, Sure, there's a handful of us. But there's not nearly enough, and that tells me it's a bigger problem. It's not really about Christianity. That's my argument with the evangelical community: is if it was, if you were a Christian, you would be standing firmly behind your Christian values and your Christian principles and saying, "This is not who we are." I I fought against Trump, not despite my conservatism. But because of my conservatism, he was a threat to my conservatism. That's why I stood up. It wasn't just, a, a you know, okay, well, maybe I'll leave and go home. It's like, no, I've been fighting the Democrats for my conservative belief for 30 years. I'm not going to uh, capitulate just because this guy's a Republican. And I don't see that in the evangelical community. Yeah, I agree. I think that's right. I think that's a, I think that's a really apt comparison. Rohana W. writes, try as I may, I do not understand what Steve Bannon's endgame is. What motivates him? Do you have any suggestions for resources I can use to understand better? Um, well, uh, one thing you could do is listen to his podcast. <laughs> Just actually listen to what he's saying because it's not a, this is not difficult. Uh, he, he, he will come out and tell you exactly what he's about, what his program is. That's not a mystery. Um, whether you can understand, you just kind of have to take him at his word in the same way that you have to take Trump at his word. Um, uh, you know, Mike, we've talked quite a bit about understanding Steve Bannon as a Leninist, somebody who wants to destroy the system so that he can remake it. Um, uh, and it's also, I think, helpful to see this, this, this fight against the institutions as swimming really with the current because the 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 tide of time is 
is doing a lot of that work already. And Steve Bannon has has recognized this. People like him have recognized this, and they see an enormous opportunity to uh, to thrash against the institutions to destroy the structure of modern civilization so that they can remake it. What would you say to Rohana um, as you know other other materials? She has suggestions for resources I can use to understand better. Where would you point her? The main thing I think you need to understand about. Uh, Steve Bannon, I, I think he's actually, I'm not going to say he's brilliant, but he's extremely intelligent. Mm-hmm. And he's also a very, very shrewd tactician. And, and when you understand that, I, I, it starts to give you the perspective on where he's going. The ultimate goal is to tear down institutions. If you want to understand Steve Bannon, you need to read and understand Vladimir Lenin. W- Lenin, when he brought about the revolution in Russia and tore down the monarchy there, he did it with a committed 25% of the population. He never enjoyed majority support. The goal was to institute an authoritative regime to tell people how to live. It was to, to get away from their own, their own version of what a, a fascist dictatorship would look like. Now, Bannon is a conservative Catholic. You, you see, it's like his Infowars thing. He's got the sacred heart of Jesus, which is Catholic imagery. But it's like, like I was saying earlier, this like medieval Catholic, like it's going back to like the time when Christian Catholic nationalism was used to impose a religious order, a a papal structure, like there's the top down. That's the goal. And, and they view these institutions as a democratic, small d democratic institutions as a threat to that, meaning a free media is a threat to that. A university system with free thinking and free ideas is a threat to that. A democratically elected government is a threat to that. So the the, the, the danger is, to, to the previous discussion, with charismatic evangelical, you know, there was a, a wide school of thought, a, a book I'm reading now called uh, Invade, Invading Babylon, mm. which is about the seven mountain mandate is literally in, is the charismatic attempt to topple the seven key institutions of society. They are government, the media, the family, entertainment, business, corporate structures. Bannon has the same goal because the goal is to create an entirely new structure for society. And maybe it's not a new one. It's actually a reversion to what 90% of our human existence has been which is an autocratic top-down regime. They view democracy as this as this immoral aberration. That is and it is. It's the American experiment. Yeah. We've only been around 250 yeah. years. It is like an that's nothing, right? Yeah. It's, we're an aberration. And so we have to fight every generation to keep it going because the natural course they would argue of human existence is to go back to a, a hegemon, to leviathan, to one person at the top whether it's the pope or a king or a dictator saying this is the way society needs to run. So I've probably gone a little bit too long, but that's what Leninism is. That's what Bannonism is. And so all he's trying to do is, is erode support amongst in these institutions over and over and over and again. All you have to do is attack, attack, attack it. And the cowardice of it all is he's not trying to impose any other vision other than we'll be in charge. That's what we want. And there's not replacing these attacks or criticisms with anything better. All you have to do is make people so cynical about their government that they'll start to tear it down. And that's where he's succeeding. 
That's the danger of, of what he's doing. But again, he's not the first in history. He's a student of history. And he has said, he's quoted, I, Google this. I mean, it, Steve Bannon says, I'm an avowed Leninist. He, that, what he's trying, and he's, he's not saying he's a communist. He's saying he's, he's an authoritarian trying to tear down institutions. You got a shout out in a comment. Janelle H. wrote in, Lucy and Mike are the best. <laughs> she wants you on every every week, Mike. So, uh, all right, no question to answer. John R., um, I read that Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Gettysburg Address was approximately 270 words in length and delivered in an era when public speakers often spoke for over two hours. Why doesn't Biden or other political leaders utilize the power of his pulpit to do something similar? What if he were to deliver short 300-word pieces that spoke not to politics, but rather to broader, positive, aspirational messages. Topics could include what it means to be an American, the fragile nature of democracy and a citizen's role to protect, etc. What if he were to deliver one each month, something of a variation on fireside chats? Do you think this could be effective? I find myself wondering why we don't see more political leaders communicate as leaders. I loved this question. Really, really love this question, uh, John. But first of all, it's, it's very thoughtful. I would love to see um, something like that. I, I read in his question a real appetite, a real hunger for the kind of rhetoric. And I mean that in the, in the, in the, you know, the craft of communicating what it is we're doing here, making the case for what it means to be an American. One of the things it reminded me of was Biden's Oval Office address right after the October 7th attacks, right after. I think it was some number of days after. But when he addressed the nation from behind the Resolute desk, I thought it was one of the best speeches he's given to date. And there was one piece of it that was missing for me. He gave this very um, passionate uh, plea to unify as Americans. And he talked about going to Ukraine. And when he goes to Ukraine, he carries with him the idea of America. Um, and he, he used that phrase quite a few times, but in the speech, he didn't articulate what America is to him, what it means to be an American. And I, I read in John's questions a hunger for an answer to that question that everyone can rally around. And so I think his is a, um, maybe it's a tactical question, a strategic question. Why don't, we, why don't other political leaders do this um, but I see, I see a, a very philosophical hole here that isn't being filled with rhetoric of the kind I think he's looking for. How do you, how do you think about this? I think you're both making two very good points, and I think they're. Uh, I would love to see them overlap. I'm not sure that they do. So let, let's let's just play you know charades here, and let's pretend I'm advising the, the Biden White House and to John's question. Do I think that, that there's some value to that? One, there could be, right? I love the idea of kind of the president speaking to the American people and frankly, just doing them in a few minute video vignettes and, and kicking those things out on the internet and allowing them to bounce around. Go, that's where people are at. Connect with them where they're at. Don't, don't have to do a big, long address. Fireside chat it. That's the new technology. Use, the, use that technology. It's two things that I think might be problematic with that. The first is... Um, you're not breaking through any media bubbles by doing that, right? You're basically preaching to the choir here. And that's that in Biden's instance, that might actually be a good idea because the weaknesses he has right now are with his own base. The second is you do start to, you have to address the problem that I believe 
Biden is his own worst messenger. You are reinforcing some of the problems that Biden has, and this is a really significant problem the Biden campaign is going to have to deal with, is how energetic is this guy going to be from the traditional four-city you know, stop on the campaigns going up and down the air stairs, running up to the stage and, and bringing up the energy. And uh, I just don't think he's capable of doing that anymore. And the more they remind the voter of that, the worse off it is. So in many cases, having a third-party messenger drive that message is probably better for them than having their own person do it. I, 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 that's my gut. That's my gut. I may be wrong in that. They may be adjust. He, he, may, he may get better at it. They may be able to use technology to enhance it. I don't know. But right now, I'm not sure he's the best messenger. The question you asked about the philosophical one, and this is a, a, a really important question, which I think is, is, is a struggle that I've been trying to understand more and more, is, is there still a mythology that we can still unite around? And I think that the cultural divide, which is, which is completely animated both parties now, right? We don't even talk about economics or economic concerns, and we believe that economics are a function of whoever is in the White House. Like if, if Trump suddenly won, all the Republicans would be like, oh, yeah, you know, the economy's fine. <laughs> right. Even if it gets worse, they'll say it's fine. Like, right. And Democrats do the same thing. Like, that's just, yeah. that's how partisanized we become, which is a sign that we do, we, do we really as a country have a common mythology anymore? Myth is very important for a nation. You can't build a nation, you can't build a human network without a common belief, uh, uh, real or imagined, as to what it is that we're heading towards and where we're at. And the Republicans just have a very different mythology about who we are as a country than do Democrats. And I don't know that one leader can kind of get up and unite us anymore. I, we've been at this place one time before in our history. Well, I guess two times. One would be the, the, the dissension we had during the, before the Revolutionary War. Huge fights about who was a loyalist and who was, who was a rebel. Right. And, and, and ultimately the rebels win. We become America and we, we, we march down on this mythology until the breaking point of the Civil War, where it was where those the two different mythologies and understandings of what America is became intractable. And we had to have a fight. We had to have a fight and, and uh, an ugly, brutal, horrible one that tore at the very core of who we are. We're 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 that's where we're at. We're having I mean, that we're not, fight. We're now. not. Yeah, we're we're in we're in it. It's not going to start. It we're in it. We're eyeballs deep in it right now, guys. And that that doesn't come from I don't think one persuasive leader. We're showing the world right now. It doesn't come from a common threat. If you can't stand up against Russia and claim what America's values are in a way that can consolidate most of Americans' belief systems, you can't. You, you, no no foreign threat is going to unite us. We we have to deal with it either through violence and conflict internally. Our political systems are not capable of doing it, or, as I argue in the forthcoming book, our own demographic change will bring that about by itself. You just made your publishers very, very proud. Very proud. <laughs> uh, yeah. After we put out our episode, uh, just moving right along here, with um, Yasha Monk, Tiffany E. wrote to us, I have never, and we got a lot of very good feedback after this, so this is just one of, well, a couple of many. I have never written about a podcast before, but this one was so outstanding that I had to let you know. The two podcasts on the identity trap were phenomenal, balanced, thoughtful, and so, so, so necessary at this time of such political division. Bravo. Steve C. wrote, thank you for posting an inspiring, thank you for posting an inspiring conversation about identity politics. Oh, there was one that came in very, very thoughtful 
note. Um, and I'm just going to read it. There's no question here, but I thought uh, this is John from Augusta, Maine. And he was writing in about, remember the discussion? We've had a couple of discussions, not super in detail yet, but about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the cases in front of the court that are now you know, percolating. They will eventually arrive at the Supreme Court. And this is about whether or not uh, Trump will be um, determined ineligible to be president. Now, there's a lot of different mechanisms that that could happen. But uh, John wrote, Ron, you asked, especially for our thoughts on enforcing 14th Amendment, Section 3, on DJT's candidacy, the wisdom of doing so or not. Some think it would be risky despite the obvious applicability of that provision because of the possible consequences, i.e. violence by DJT fans, lackeys. Certainly such consequences must be considered. I disagree with those who would not enforce it. And then he makes uh, several points here. I'll just read them because I thought he laid them out very well. First, I think the argument that enforcing this self-executing provision quote, at this stage of the electoral process is specious. Until an individual potentially subject to the prohibition announces his intention to run for public office, there is no occasion to consider applying the prohibition. Uh, Once DJT declared his intention to run again, it wasn't much later that constitutional scholars started talking about Section 14.3 and its apparent effect on his eligibility. So there is nothing untimely, is the point. Secondly, perhaps most important, the Constitution is the law the most senior law of the land, from which no one is exempt. Moreover, it's not even arcane. I think most American adults are capable of reading the words and understanding what they mean. Even if it might be needful to walk a few people through the meaning of any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, or officer of the United States, these are hardly abstruse concepts. Thirdly, The argument that most people aren't familiar with this provision of law, and therefore it shouldn't be enforced, is nonsense. Few people arrested or indicted are that knowledgeable about the specific law they're accused of violating, but since when do we hesitate to, quote, throw the book at them on that ground? Not to do so with DJT really would create a two-tiered justice system. Finally, if the law is not enforced against someone who is a notoriously clear and present danger to the United States, when would it ever be? Not to enforce it here would render it useless in the future, Anyone charged at a later date could rightly cry discriminatory enforcement. You all are right that the sooner the high courts of the land rule on eligibility challenges, the better. But if the courts find, as you and I believe they must, that DJT is ineligible, so be it. Civil unrest has a way of dissipating when seditionists see that the law enforcement agencies and others that might assist, e.g. National Guard, are prepared to keep order. This isn't their first rodeo. Thanks, for an always stimulating podcast forum. I thought that was very well laid out, very well argued. So I just wanted to bring it to the rest of our well-structured and, um, and you know, the, 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 the possibility probability, if this is, uh, is determined against Trump's eligibility, uh, of of civil unrest of violence is very high. I mean, this will, this, this will get very ugly. And I think that's. It's Harper Ferry. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's Harper's Ferry. Do you want to explain yeah. that the historical reference? It's the opening salvo of conflicts. Uh, I, 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 I think that we need to do as much as we can to mitigate civil unrest, and it's it's easy to say that from an academic sense when we when we start to see actual violence, um, that becomes a different consideration, right? These are these are these are very real topics. These aren't academic exercises, and as Americans. We don't have any recent memory with this stuff. So it's easy to bandy it about and be like, oh, yeah, well, if they're going to 
you know, uh, civil insurrections have a way of kind of working themselves out. Well, kind of. I mean, a lot of bloodshed sometimes, a lot of real damage to your national character and and to your institutions. Yeah. But, that, but again, I, I think I think the, the overarching point he makes is right, is if you're not going, if you have a constitution, you have to stand by it. Otherwise, right. what are you doing? Right. You, you and, just do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and it's, at a certain point, it becomes untenable. Like I said, you know, 150 years after our founding, we had a great civil war. You know, we're about 150 years after the Civil War. <laughs> you know, it, it's like the famous, you know, it's like Clemenza in The Godfather says, you know, every 15, 20 years, you got to let the bad blood out of the family. You got to have a war. Wasn't that Jefferson also? And, and, Didn't he say like every uh, 50 years or so? Clemenza, Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, you have to, re, you have to, re, <laughs> sorry, that, was, that wasn't funny. That was kind of funny. You have to, you have to, funny. you have to refresh the blood, the, the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants and patriots, I think is what Jefferson yeah. said. Something to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, is that, this is a natural course of human events is 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 these conflicts become untenable and you have to determine as a generation who have been bestowed as the torchbearers of liberty and freedom in this experiment is this worth fighting for or do you just capitulate and, and be like okay well we'll just kind of do what, what human beings have always done and and we'll, we'll have a king or or an autocrat and i i think that i i hope that this generation is worthy of the moment that it's worthy of that fight it is absolutely, in my estimation, I think it will absolutely lead to civil strife and civil conflict. I don't think we have a choice. And that's the moment that we stand at. That's the precipice that we're upon. I, I, like I said, I, even despite all of that and knowing what that means in the truest sense of the word, I'm still very optimistic about who we are as a people. And I still think we have it in us to, to, to be victorious in that fight and be a better nation for another 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. Okay, uh, I wanted to share a couple of reviews we've gotten as well. On Apple Podcasts, one reviewer wrote, thanks for opening my eyes to so much confusion. I feel much more understanding of what is going on in the world. Another wrote, always honest, thoughtful, insightful. Here's one more. This is just the best political podcast, period. It provides such a rich, diverse, in-depth analysis of complex issues. The passion is addicting. I listen every week without missing a beat with all the misinformation out there. It's so reassuring to have a source I can trust. So these reviews and the ratings in Apple Podcasts really do help us rise in the rankings. It's also very gratifying to see uh, when you write nice things about us. So help other people discover politicology organically. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate it if you could go to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. If you have questions, thoughts, comments about anything we've talked about, here or previously, uh, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. And uh, we'll do more of these in the future. I think this is really fun. Mike, signing off. I thought it's been great. No, I love this. I love this format. I hope we can do more. Love the engagement because yeah. the audience is smart. It's insightful. You can see that on, on social media. This is a great way to, to, to answer questions from our perspective on, on what's going on. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. All right, everybody. See you in the next episode.